to another Pinch Gut podcast. Genevieve Lang sitting opposite Erin Helliard for a chat about books to Huda and a very unusual work. Erin, I'm going to get you to say the name of it correctly for us all to start. So the work we're talking about, and I'm so excited to perform, is Membra Jesu Nostri. What is it? <laughs> so this is Books to Huda's probably most recorded and famous work, if you could call that. Um, it's a work that early music aficionados know really well. But some of our listeners who maybe know the St. John Passion or the St. Matthew Passion of Bach and maybe the Dixit Dominus of Handel and enjoy those works, but not other works maybe of other composers, this might be new to you, which is really exciting. It's what Pinchcut specialises in, bringing these beautiful but sometimes neglected works to the concert stage. Um, Books to Huda, some people may know, was a very important composer, so important, in fact, that the great Johann Sebastian Bach actually walked 400 kilometres to go and stay and listen and study Books to Huda, um, who was an amazing organist, and he instituted a very important series of concerts called the Arbent Music. It just means afternoon music. And in fact, we think this cantata cycle that we're performing um, and that we're talking about today was probably premiered at one of these concerts, these evening concerts. And it's an amazing work. It's a, it's a what we might call a passion cycle. Um, so various works were written for the passion, um, that time about Easter when we contemplate Uh, the crucifixion of of Christ. Um, Most notably, the great passion works are those that relate the Gospels. So St. Matthew, St. John, um, those are the ones by uh, Bach, but other composers set those as well. But other composers experimented with different kinds of passion texts. And Buxtehude almost certainly compiled this passion text himself. And it's unusual in that the central poem is a medieval poem that... um, uh, was written in the 13th century, and it's about sort of a uh, uh, acolyte meditating on the different parts of the body of Christ on the cross. And it starts with his feet and ed- ends with his head crowned. So, as a, sorry to interrupt, but as a, as a as an audience member, you might consider yourself sitting at the foot of the cross or the feet of Christ on the cross, and slowly gazing upwards does that mean that the text is very visceral that it's we're we're dealing with like real human flesh and suffering it's interesting you say that because yeah there are elements in this that are quite visceral and that's quite unusual for the 17th century um it brings to mind kind of contemporary ideas from descartes in fact about where they were starting to um talk about what we now call the mind body split and so i think those kind of texts that talk about um, the body of Christ was certainly of interest to to religious-minded people of the time. Uh, it is absolutely true that the audience of Books to Hooters, uh, time would have imagined this kind of journey as you go through each seven cantatas. And of course, seven is a very sacred number as well. So the whole cycle is full of fascinating symbolism. And... Uh, There are also some selections from the Bible. Um, So it's interspersed, this medieval poem, as I mentioned. But then to sort of complement that, there are also some selections from uh, the Old Testament. And it's interesting because the poem that I've been talking about was certainly brought by Luther 
into Protestant uh, discussion, which makes sense for a composer like Books de Huda to have used. And it became almost quasi-mystical. And that's what's so amazing about the music of these pieces, is that they are so meditative and intimate and and beautiful. It, it's a really extraordinary uh, work. And I, I first came to it with not really knowing about the text and just came to uh, enjoy the, the sheer beauty of the craftsmanship of these works. And I know, so even if you're not particularly religious-minded, um, you can enjoy these works for the purity um, of their musical uh, craftsmanship. It's, it's an amazing work. It sounds like uh, Buxtehude didn't really have a model on which he based this piece. And as you said, it's a set of seven cantatas, each one of them reflecting a part of the body of Christ. What do, you, what do we hear in the music? What, what distinguishes the cantatas from each other? You're absolutely right to mention that it's unique, um, uh, the, certainly the text setting. What we can also discern in the work are Buxtehude's um, strong influences from the great Italians, um, notably Carissimi, who he studied. So the form of the cantata, another composer may have just set it for voices and basso continuo, so the instruments, the bowed instruments that play the bass line and then the harmony instruments like harp, organ and theorbo that flesh out the harmonies. That could have been entirely fine for a Lutheran audience. But what Buxtehude does, which is so beautiful, is he adds in obbligato instruments, and that was an Italian trait. And when that Italian uh, idea came to North Germany, where Buxtehude was active, they actually really latched on to this idea of obbligato instruments, and they actually took it even further than the Italians. And you certainly discern that in Membra Jesu Nostri. So it's got two violins, and then there's a, a obbligato bass part together with a basso continuo part. And the way Buxtehude structures these beautiful cantatas is it starts with a ritornello, which is the Italian word for little return, and it's always what we call any instrumental sort of section which doesn't have voices. And that paints the affect or the emotional state for each cantata. And it's very interesting because as the gaze rises from the feet to the side, to the heart, to the head, to the hands, and as we move upwards, Buxtehuber sets it from going from flat keys to sharp, which sort of increases your focus almost. Mm. Um, and certainly, you know, through the instruments as they start to play in sharper keys, you get slightly different tone colours. So there's that, but also... Uh, even though there's a lot of symmetry between the works, there's a lot of variety in, on a small scale. And that's really what composers like Bookster in the 17th century were so fascinated with. Symmetry, but also creating within that symmetry this um, extraordinary attention to diversity. Uh, it's a wonderful work. So that instrumentation that I mentioned is in six of the cantatas, the two violins. But for, the, for the, arguably the heart of the work, which is the sixth cantata, and that's the heart, ad cor, where we contemplate the beating heart of, of Jesus um, on the cross, Buxtehude puts the, asks the instrumentalists to put the violins down and actually take up a viol consort. And how is that different as an instrument for a first-timer to pinch gut who doesn't know what a viol is in consort or anything like that? Can you explain to us what the difference between a violin and a viol is? Absolutely. So we have the violin family that, of course, came from Italy, um, but predating the violins were, of course, the viola de gamba family. And uh, these gambas, they're sort of 
they're played generally between the legs. So like the Italian words, exactly like a cello. It's called viola da gamba, and gamba is the Italian word for legs. Whereas the violins were played da braccio, which means from the shoulder. So it makes a lot of sense that Buxtehude would choose these instruments for this particular cantata because the imagery of musicians playing the gamba between their legs was also meant to evoke the cross itself because the bowed arm produces that's going lateral looks like a cross and so some of our listeners would recognize the fact that in the great passions of Johann Sebastian Bach those moments where we are contemplating um the image of Christ and his mercy through the heart, um, suddenly we get the, the gamba come up um, to, to illustrate the idea of the cross as well as this idea that it's the central image of the crucifixion. And how many gambas do we hear at this so, point? So, again, a very important number. We have five parts. And what's really cool about this Pinchgut particular performance is, of course, in the 18th century... Um, the 17th and the 18th century, musicians doubled on many instruments. And we know that Buxtehude played the gamba, but he was also an extremely fine organist. Now, Genevieve, I don't know about you, <laughs> but I only play the keyboards. Um, and it's very rare nowadays to find musicians who specialise in radically different instruments. But not so with the wonderful, valiant members of the Orchard of the Antipodes. They're up for we, anything. They're up for anything. And we've asked uh, the wonderful Julia Fredersdorf, uh, uh, Simon Martinellis, who's playing a theorbo, Karina Schmitz, who's playing violin, and also we have on uh, Gamba as well, we have Anton Barber and uh, Laura Vaughan. So those two, Anton and Laura, stay on Gambas, but Karina, Julia, and Simon put down their instruments and wow. pick up tenor and treble vials so have you taken those three musicians and locked them in a room <laughs> between now and the performances because you know i play harp and you play keyboards and we practiced for years before getting in front of an audience of the caliber of a pinch gut audience so that's truly courageous i think what's great about it is so julia and the treble vial there's a there's a lot of synergy between the violin and the treble okay um but there's even more synergy between karina who who reads alto clef she will be quite comfortable in terms of reading this clef because she plays the viola even though in this program she's playing the violin um and then simon was just telling me some martinellis who plays theorbo he says that the tenor viol is tuned exactly the same way as a lute so he's already knows which strings he needs to sort of so access. one hand for simon knows what it's doing. <laughs> that's right the, the other hand the other which hand has won't. never held a bow before in its life is <laughs> Going to need some guidance. I yes. think that's extraordinary, and I'll absolutely yeah. be looking out for that and clapping extra loud. At exactly. The end of the yeah. for no, those three. It's a wonderful um, example of uh, the versatility and brilliance of our musicians, but also what I love about it is it's what they did in the day. It's and, so authentic. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, can we touch on the voices for this? Who who's singing, and is this similarly sort of flexible in its scoring? Yes. So exactly, that's a wonderful question. Um, the uh, I mentioned that there are five-part consort here as well uh, for vials, but it makes sense then that there's a five-part vocal ensemble. And that five-part... Five parts is a really important number for the 17th century. Um, the opera that we're performing this year has a five-part Venetian ensemble. Uh, we have five-part voices, which is often two sopranos, alto, tenor and bass. And it's only later that we got the four-part structure that we're all used to in orchestras and also choirs. And what I love about the five-part 
texture, Genevieve, is it's so rich because you have an extra consonant voice within a hum- harmonious structure. And so what it creates is a, a closeness to the harmony, a richness. It glows. It has... Um, it has this lovely textured background. It can be transparent, but can also be, be, be dense. It's a wonderful colour. And the wonderful thing about Membra Jesu Nostri is Buxtehude himself encourages flexibility and adaptability, which is basically the byword for any music of the 17th and 18th mm. century. They wanted it to be performed in as many different ways, and they encourage people to do it with lots of forces if they had them, but if they didn't, it's fine to do it with less. Mm-hmm. And he himself, in his piece, uh, gives directions on how you could do it with a larger choir and, a, and five-part soloists, or you do the entire work with just five soloists. And that's the way that we're doing it for our performance. Just five soloists. Um, so excited to welcome back Alex Umans, oh, who's doing a wonderful... She's been singing with us in 17th century music and 18th century music as well and has just gone on to a stellar career um, in London. She's coming back to sing the top soprano. And then um, Lauren Lodge Campbell, who I haven't worked with since we did Return of Ulysses quite a few years ago. Again, since her work with Les Florisson, has just gone on to a wonderful career in early music. And so to bring those two back on the top two parts is really exciting and then we have um the wonderful hannah who's been joining us with our recent concerts winner the pieta also splendor of venice some of our monteverdi and then we also have tenor our uh, humanities foundation taran phoebe scholar lewis hurley who's familiar to our audiences now and the wonderful wonderful andrew o'connor who knows this repertoire back to front and is um, so inspiring when we work together in rehearsal. So it's really, uh, it's the core pinch gut vocalists that we just absolutely love um, who are coming to to bring their expertise to this amazing cycle. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, concerts in Sydney and in Melbourne for Buxtehude's Membra Jesu Nostri. Can't wait. I think it will be to sort of borrow a little bit from Debussy, quite a sacred but profound experience to hear this music live in concert. Thank you, Erin. Thanks. Thanks.